0: This is The Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma, managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with
1: women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners, and doctors, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that And can you have it all and all
0: at the same time? From skin care to cancer, dermatitis, Botox, fillers, sunscreen, and everything in between, our guest today is a true expert. Dr. Ellen Gendler is a leading authority in cosmetic dermatology, a board-certified dermatologist, and the founder of Gendler Dermatology in New York City. Beyond her private practice and impeccable academic credentials, Dr. Gendler is a clinical associate professor at NYU Langone Medical Center and lectures regularly at the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery. She's been a consultant, investigator, and or tester for a variety of new products and companies, and she trains medical professionals around the country teaching best injection practices. Maybe even to your doctors. Dr. Gendler is a fixture on New York Magazine's list of best doctors. She's quoted in popular magazines and was appointed a New York City Honorary Police Surgeon. On top of all this, she's a wife, mother, and now grandmother. So let's find out how she has managed all of this. But first, in the interest of full disclosure, she is my dermatologist and a doctor I turn to when I need medical advice or referrals of any kind welcome to the balanced dilemma dr gendler welcome nice nice to speak to you what a resume yes it is quite a resume and we will link it in our show notes so you you, did you start out in life wanting to be a doctor
2: i didn't start out wanting to be a doctor but it sort of evolved when i was in high school and took ap bio and And uh, I got a job volunteering at Memorial Sloan Kettering because a teacher of mine worked there on the weekend. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Before that, I was going to be a translator at the U.N. Wow, that's quite
0: a shift or a (laughs) pivot, as we call them. (laughs) I mean, I've often. That is true.
1: Yeah, some some girls want to grow up to be vets or things like that. I I don't think
0: I'd heard translator. Sounds exciting. (laughs) It's a long training process, isn't it?
2: It's a very long training process. You know, it's four years of college. It's four years of medical school. And then it's at least four years of training. Sometimes it can be eight years of training. Very long.
0: And there's continued training even after that.
2: There's forever training, hopefully.
0: (laughs) Did you have role models for becoming a doctor or having a private practice or becoming a teacher of other doctors?
2: You know, I had a role model of being teachers. That's what my parents did. And I had no role models of doctors because even growing up, we used to go to a health clinic. That's the kind of health care that we had. So I had no one guiding me in this. And honestly, it was my teacher who guided me when I was in high school. It's just so important to have someone like that who mentors you and makes you realize that there are certain things you're capable of doing and and actually want to do.
0: So interesting how a teacher in high school can, you know, push forward a, an entire career, an entire success. I recently learned that you married your high school sweetheart.
2: <laughs> I did. I married my high school sweetheart. And we actually took that same AP bio class. Um, his favorite story is when we had to dissect a, a cat and we didn't finish. So we had to bring it home. <laughs> and he, got, he got his parents' car and we put it in the trunk. And we brought the car home, and he, his mother didn't realize, and she went to the supermarket and opened the trunk to unload the groceries, and, and there it was. <laughs> and it, was a, it was an auspicious beginning. <laughs> Come on. Did they tell that story at your wedding? Well, I love that. <laughs> I don't, no, was at our, our wedding? We, I had not, Oh, no, we had done that. I, no, no one did say that at my wedding. They did talk about the prom, though. Oh, what's the story about the prom? No, yeah, we, we went We went to our high school farm together. It's kind of unusual, isn't it? You know, and, and I insisted we'd be home by midnight. So my husband used to say youth is wasted on the young when he referred to me. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, what does your husband do?
2: Take a guess. My husband's a doctor as well. He's Look a at gastroenterologist that. at NYU.
1: And did his family, uh, were they in medicine? No.
2: Nobody. Nobody. Nobody was in medicine. I mean, to be fair, my dad went for his Ph.D. when I was growing up, and I used to help him type his, his paper. So I, I came from a very academic family, but um, my husband's dad, his mom did not work and outside the home, and his father was a garment center uh, salesman. So, so, no, neither one of us.
0: So with both of you heading to and through medical school, and you can tell us whether you did it together, did you consider how you would... Have a family, if in fact you plan to have a family, as well as pursuing these, you know,
2: what can be intense careers? You know... First of all, we, we to be honest, we broke up all of college and we didn't get back together till we were in medical school, okay? So, let, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it wasn't like we never met anybody else in our lives. But, you know, these are things I never really, I don't know, I never really thought about all that stuff. I, I honestly didn't. I never thought about how am I going to raise a family? What should I do? It just was one step at a time. I knew what I wanted to do and those things came afterwards. Um, I, I feel like sometimes, Kids now just overthink everything, um, and it makes it really difficult to to often move forward in your life.
1: It's interesting. That brings me to the question I was going to ask you. Do you think it's harder now for young women in pursuing a career like yours and and thinking about having a family?
2: Uh, I think it's actually, to be honest, it's much easier now. It seems harder because everything seems harder to them but it's actually easier because they have completely changed the rules the rules are totally different when you train now in medicine than when i trained what do you mean by that there are legal limits to how many hours you're allowed to work Consecutively, we didn't we didn't have that, so there would be times when we would be uh, awake for two full days. And you remember there were you know there were some court cases about this, people claiming that Libby Zion once died. Yeah, exactly. Libby Zion case changed everything. So they're very strict about rules like that. In addition, when I was training, and this just sounds horrible, and when I repeat it, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but the idea that you might get pregnant while you were medical school would be one thing, but in residence in residency training it was just anathema. Unless you were older and you had a time limit, if you got pregnant when you were a resident, your co residents would look at you with such hatred because that meant they had a cover for you. And there was there were no provisions for maternity leave. It wasn't like you were allowed to take three months. Not at all. So even now it's not great. The women who have babies have to take all their vacation. They have to save up their vacation for it. And if they end up taking some additional uh, time for maternity leave, I guess it's a program by program, but most of them are like this. If you take extra time, it's conceivable that they won't allow you to finish your training on time. You may have to do an extra few weeks or a month of training in order to be, be eligible for your board. So it's oh, totally I, unfair.
1: And does this happen to the fathers in the program? I'm just wondering. I say that tongue in cheek because I doubt it. <laughs>
2: well, well, you know, I don't know the answer to that because now fathers are given paternity leave. My husband had an, had a few hours off while I was in, you know, in. The, in the delivery room and he actually went up and down seeing patients be, between contractions it's very different now fathers are given i think they get i think it's a month i i'm not exactly sure i know my son is a doctor too and his wife just had a baby and he i think has one month off and so i, I don't I, they build this into programs now they po- probably have an extra person in the program because this happens and it's a it's a totally different world now.
0: So, Ellen, did you wait until you were done with the training to have your first child? Did. You did.
2: I did. I did. I waited until I was already in practice when I could manage my own time. And once I was in practice, it was very hard. You can't just take three months off if you're in your own business when you're starting. So right? that's and interesting. You did
0: have a plan, and you saw having your own business as a way to manage. Is that fair to say?
2: That's true. That's what I did. I, I never really wanted to work for anyone. That's just the way I am. More, you can speak to that. Um, but so I decided, and it was very daring at the time, I decided I'm going to finish my training, open my own practice, and I moonlit by working in another dermatologist's office out on Long Island. And I used to drive back and forth in the city. And that's how I supported myself because. As you can imagine, I had no patience when I first started.
0: Did this give you more uh, flexibility and control of your hours by having your own practice?
2: Yes, it gave me complete control of my hours, which were very long, but I could still control it so that if I knew I had something to do at 12 o'clock on Tuesday, I could just book out of my own office and I was not beholden to anyone. So,
1: Ellen, I, I I have to ask a question. Did you nurse your children?
2: I did not. I did not know. I was I just did.
1: curious, you know, if you could squeeze no. that in, too.
2: No, you know, that was see that's, that's why when you ask the question, can you have it all? Let's also remember that back then, it, you, you weren't completely shamed about this, okay? So I went back to work very quickly after having both my children. I knew that was not going to be tenable. I don't know what I would do now because, you know, you, you, you can't get out of the hospital. Room. They'll treat you like you're, you know, like you're from a right. planet if you say you're not going to breastfeed. If so you don't breastfeed, I, that Correct. Was, Correct,
1: correct. So and there's articles different. on that, shaming women when babies have turned out just fine on formula. E- even though I'm an advocate yeah. for nursing, it, it, both ways, right.
0: it's a choice. Okay, we're going to take... a too. Ellen, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Dr. Ellen Gendler. Now we get to the fun stuff. What's a master injector? <laughs> <laughs> a master injector
1: is
2: someone who is a really good injector and knows the academics, the anatomy and the approach that that's proper but that's a that's a tough question because now all sorts of people call themselves master injectors and it's kind of crazy.
1: So it's a self-appointed title or is it something that comes after you've done 10,000 injections?
2: Well, it's not really a self-appointed title. It's what you're referred to by the companies who who ask you to teach, but interestingly enough there are people now who call themselves master injectors because they take a course some sort of certification course and they tend to be nurses and PAs who take some certification courses and then call themselves master injectors which sort of makes me chuckle
0: right so this isn't something that's restricted to MDs no
2: No, it's really not
0: so let's just talk about dermatology well first of all cueing to something we were talking about earlier do you think that's a good field for women or or families or women with families
2: i think it's a good field for anyone with or without a family and i think it's the best why is it the best yes because this, as you all know the skin is the largest organ and it's the window to everything
0: we have that in our script yes. as a matter I was of going fact to say that you
2: thank you largest well, it's organ true. it's really true But, you know, what? the reason I decided to do DERM was when I was a medical student, I I wasn't planning on doing it. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, either internal medicine or obstetrics. And when I did my dermatology rotation, literally the smartest doctor I'd ever met was the attending. And any time someone in the ICU had a was sick and had a problem they always end up with some skin manifestation and he would go in as the derm consult and he knew every disease ever known to mankind and he would solve everything i was in awe and that is what um, that's what possessed me to to switch and decide to go into derm so dermatology isn't just
0: beauty i mean i think back to this episode of seinfeld where jerry is dating a dermatologist and basically calls her a pimple popper when she <laughs> referred to herself as a lifesaver and until he realized oh my god there really is you know a life-saving component can you just talk about the yeah. field generally
2: well Yeah, you know, when I started in dermatology, it wasn't a beauty specialty. It was not at all. It was a medical specialty, and it remains a medical specialty, and it should remain a medical specialty. Um, But it's there's a whole bunch of newcomers who seem to have forgotten that, and dermatology is, is probably the hardest residency to get. So the people who are in derm are the cream of the crop. It does sadden me when they turn into just, you know, I don't even know why. I'm almost a cosmetician, but it makes me upset that that happened. But my trajectory was a little different because I specialized in contact dermatitis after my residency, and I went to London and I did further training with the world's expert in contact dermatitis.
0: Which is and what?
2: Because which is allergic reactions on the skin, and that's a, you know it's a common problem, and and so I became expert in that. And because it was a different time, there weren't eight billion. Skincare line. And so the, the only things that existed were oil of Olay and you know some other simple uh, things, but they started getting a little more sophisticated. And because I was always dealing with the reactions to different products... They, I became consultant. They asked me to consult with so many companies to help develop their lines, and I actually helped Bobby Brown develop her her skincare line. So I, I came at this from a medical perspective. I didn't come out. I didn't graduate and say, "Hey, I'm going to start injecting people." They didn't even. There was the only collagen. That was the only thing that was available, and collagen lasted. I used to say, "Till the patient paid the check and they got out the door." You know, really. So huh. it, yeah, so it, the, the field has completely morphed and changed. You know,
1: I, I wonder if you see a proliferation of, uh, you know, skin irritations and allergies. It seems that they now have this whole product line in stores that deal with uh, things that are either fragrance-free or unscented, which I know there's a big difference between the two. But are we becoming more allergic to things? If that's true, why well,
2: I think we are becoming more allergic to things cause they're, because there are more things, okay? And people are putting way more thick stuff on their face than they ever did before. So there are lots of people who believe they have allergies or sensitivities that don't. And there are many that have chronic rashes that don't realize they're, that they're allergic. So it is a, it is a big issue. But
0: so you are known for being for a straightforward, gimmick-free approach, which sort of dovetails off of that, almost uh, natural What does that mean to you and in your practice?
2: For me, it it means that I don't like people to use too many products on their faces, not just because it's expensive, but because it's unnecessary. So I'm really very fixed on what I like people to use. i i often say you know this is what i think this is what you need to use and i give them a very streamlined routine and i say it's like putting on a shirt and pants that's what you have to wear when you go out if you want to add a scarf and you want to add you know a little belt that's up to you so there are the non-negotiables and there's the frill so what is it we
0: should be trying to do is it to look younger look better feel
2: better I think definitely you shouldn't be trying to look younger. That's a terrible goal. I think looking better, if it makes you feel good to look better, sure. I think you should try to keep your skin healthy because having unhealthy skin is very unpleasant. Um, And so my thrust is to start teaching people when they're young what to do to help keep their skin as healthy as possible. And healthy skin is beautiful skin. That's really the truth
1: if we take care of our skin from an early age is there a visible difference when we get into the older years from having put in that that time
2: oh well there's a huge difference and i hopefully when our kids grow up it'll be much more obvious than it is in our generation but you know i i realized fairly early that this was a problem and so when patients come in and their arms are all spotted and brown and things and then they look at my arms which have virtually nothing and i've never done anything to them it shows what the what the you know the benefits of staying out of the sun or protecting yourself from the sun can do and that's really that's very important something that that strikes me as crazy Mm. something that strikes me as funny and crazy is i watch my patients fastidious with their little kids about sunscreen and then they go out themselves and sit in the sun. And I think to myself how silly on so many levels, but your kids will ultimately mimic what you do. So if you think you're instilling good habits in them by doing what you do, you're not.
1: <laughs> I've always been under the impression that there are two things that are the ma- most important contributors to skin deterioration, smoking and the sun.
2: Is that true? That's true. Well, it's smoking in the sun, and now we have all the additional environmental issues that we have, like, the past three days. If you spent all day outside for the last three days and you lived in New York City, you know, this might reflect itself further down the line. But, yes, pollutants like smoke. And
1: you're saying that due to the fires that we've had
0: just to to keep our episode evergreen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, obviously, you're talking sunscreen is, in a sense, the secret to the fountain of youth?
2: The sunscreen really is—it's a secret to the fountain of youth. I sound like a broken record, and you hear this all over. But this is my this is my project. The sunscreen is my project, and it has been since the 1990s um, when I realized that the sunscreens we have in the U.S. are just not really adequate, and they have so much better protection in Europe and Asia, and it's it's unfortunate.
0: And we could probably do an entire show on sunscreen, yeah. uh, but I will. And we should. (laughs) And we should maybe another day. But we will put in show notes what your recommendations are for sunscreens because you are very specific about it. And on that, we're going to take a break and come back and talk about some beauty stuff. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Dr. Ellen Gendler. And, you know, the working
1: title of this show is uh, You Look Good for Your Age. And
0: that phrase is not a compliment. (laughs) Let's talk about that. And I'll just add that recently Jennifer Aniston actually said that's a phrase that bothers her the most when people talk about how she looks. What do you think about that?
2: Right. I mean, it's a a terrible thing to say. You know, it's like saying to someone, oh, you look really nice for a short person. It's absolutely ridiculous and, and should not be a term that comes out of anyone's mouth.
0: Do you see this pressure on women to look younger, though? And is it different for there, men?
2: I think there really is a pressure, and I, this seems to be such a you know an over-talked topic. But I can't stress it enough: the pressures of social media and the the filters that are on really make it a problem for women who are it's still trying to work they're trying to be relevant and they look older as they have to right and so they they end up wanting to do things to make them look younger which doesn't necessarily work
0: i imagine that part of your job has some measure of a therapy component because uh, people come in mm-hmm. complaining or crying about something going on but do you hear that i need this for my job i'd make more money I- if i looked younger Things like that. Well,
2: I I don't I don't hear I'd make more money if I were younger. I don't I really don't hear that. But I have re- recently been hearing a lot that this is really important for me. And it, it in the last five years it's become so obvious to me because as my patients have gotten older with me, you know, they may have started with me when they were in their 30s, and now they're in their 50s and sometimes 60s. And it is a it's a tough it's a tough work world. So yes, they want to be relevant, they want to be youthful, energetic, young, and they want to do things that make them project that image.
1: So what is a derm influencer on social media? What, what does that mean?
2: Oh, ouch, I don't know what it means. I know I know what it seems to be. It, it, a derm influencer is someone who has a wide audience and touts dermatologic knowledge about products and procedures and all sorts of stuff. This is a real problem for
0: me. Why? What's the problem?
2: Are they not dermatologists? No, no, no. Dermatology influencers are, they're usually young dermatologists. And that's fine because they're obviously very, very smart. Um, They talk about things that they know and they, they, they try to give really informative information. But many of them, most of them have not practiced for very long, so their experience is limited when they talk about the best thing to do for this or that they really haven't seen patients for many years to actually be able to make some great judgments. But the part that bothers me more is that many of these young derm influencers, because they're young in practice, they haven't been out long, they, they don't have a you know, big following, and they earn money by sponsoring or talking about products from companies many of which they don't even know so they get sent products and they're asked to review them or talk about them and they're offered money to do it and then they get paid and the advice they give is not necessarily good or correct
1: you know i just have to interject here a personal story which maura knows i'm apt to to do on our show i had this persistent rash uh, for years and I came to the conclusion that it was from a toothpaste that I absolutely loved. And I won't say the name, but I'll tell you this. It was blue. And I went to a male dermatologist, and he said, well, I don't know what the problem is. Here's some cream. I... Got rid of the toothpaste, but then I loved it so much. A couple months later, I went back, and the little rash started. And then I used a cream that was blue. I went to a female dermatologist who's a friend of mine. I explained the situation. She said, tell me the product. She pulled up the ingredients, blue dye number three. And sure enough, I'm totally allergic to that, and it caused an insidious rash. But if you didn't know that, you might be using these eye creams and everything that have something in it that is highly... Uh, a, a big allergen.
2: <laughs> well, that, well, since I told you earlier, that's how I started my career. That's exactly the kind of patient that used to get referred to me. So I was like Sherlock Holmes trying to figure this out. And when you said toothpaste, that struck a chord because maybe 15 or more years ago, I started noticing that so many people were coming in with what's called perioral dermatitis, this rash around yep. their mouth. And that was the era when um, tartar-controlled toothpaste was yep. just coming on the scene. And I realized that that, that was what was doing it. And there is an ingredient in many tartar-controlled toothpaste called pyrophosphate, uh, which can cause perioral derm. And just by switching to a different toothpaste that doesn't have it solves the problem. And so that, that's why I love doing contact dermatitis so much, because you could really help someone um, who has been struggling. But just let me, let's be honest the other person who ran the contact derm clinic with me was a man and he probably would have figured out the blue dye as well. I don't think it's the woman. Of one course,
1: it wasn't a gender day. thing, but you know, we're talking here about the connection between uh, dermatology and our self-image and it makes you feel bad when you have a yucky rash on your face. It's the first thing that you look Terrible. at. Yeah, and so we can't minimize the significance even if it's not age-related. It's
0: just self But you can also right. feel yucky if you look in the mirror and you don't recognize recognize yourself anymore
2: so at what right. well that does happen at, that what i'm sorry so that, that's, i said that does happen that's where old photos come in every so every so often you just got to go back to an old photo and say yeah that, that was me <laughs> but also
0: with aging sometimes you go oh my god who is that person where, what happened what age do people start getting concerned about aging from what you see
2: uh, i see i see both well, sounds absurd women in their 30s starting to complain about lines on their face and i i you know I, I almost roll my eyes because it's going to get so much worse than that but you know each decade brings its own challenges that you need to understand there's things uh, like intrinsic aging and extrinsic so intrinsic is if you were a monk and you lived in a you know in a in a closed environment you never walked out of your house you would still age and your skin would still sag it would not sag as much as someone who's been outside in the sun all, all the time but there are certain things that are unavoidable uh, you know you can't you can't stop that are you
0: finding that the concern about aging is shifting younger
2: oh my goodness it's it's, it's incredible i mean i have girls and fewer men than than young women but in their 20s coming in wanting to do things on their on their faces and sometimes it's alarming sometimes it's understandable well one thing i read about
0: was a trend that i want you to explain baby botox
2: what is that? <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, not, it's not Botox on a newborn. Okay. Baby Botox, what baby Botox is, it's a, you know, a moniker for it, is uh, Botox injected into young women. And I've been doing a study in my office, which is so interesting. I can usually predict what, how somebody is going to age by looking at their mother. And I have a whole series of photographs of of young women and their mothers. And you can see the patterns. Obviously, the father has a role in it, too, but I don't always get to see the dad. But you can see the eyebrow position, the eyebrow shape, the the way people smile. And you need to realize that when your mother would tell you, don't make that face, it's going to stick like that. Well, that's true. Over many years, when you frown, when you smile, the muscles work and eventually lines are etched. So I... What is the value of that data? For me, the value is I feel like I can predict which 30-year-old is in 20 years going to have brows that are low and she will be uncomfortable with that. And by putting in a small amount of Botox or one of the other neurotoxins into specific muscles between the eyebrows, you can help prevent the brows from descending. And that's the only reason that I do Botox on young people early. It's to prevent that brow descent.
1: You're giving me such an image. I have a photograph that's got four generations of us that it shows just what you're talking
2: about. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's so interesting. If you look at, a, look at a baby picture of your own child or your grandchild or, or your friend's child, look at what their brow position is as a baby. You'll see that some people have high brows and some have low. So you see more eyelid on some people when they're babies than you do on others. And those are the people whose brows will continue to descend just by using the the muscles in the forehead. And over time, as their skin thins and loosens, the skin of the upper eyelids will start to come down over and it's aging and can be uncomfortable and sometimes can interfere with your vision.
1: That is true. That was a part of uh, it's complicated, where uh, she admitted to something like taping her saggy eyelids. Right.
2: (laughs) That's exactly. That's exactly right. That's precisely the case. And and I believe that if we start Botox at a certain age, I don't mean when you're 15, but small amounts to inhibit those deep contractions, you will actually help that. So you actually are think that's good. The baby Botox. for the right person, I think it's good. If you look at someone's face and they have no lines forming between their eyes, and they're thirty-five years old, then no, I don't think they. You can see already who is starting to do that. So you have to you have to analyze people. Just because a person is alive doesn't mean they need botox.
0: Okay, we are going to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with Dr. Ellen Gendler, cosmetic dermatologist. We were just talking about baby Botox and we'd like to talk about unrealistic expectations perhaps.
1: And before we do that, I just wanna let our listeners know where they can find us. They can go to TheBalancedDilemma.com where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter. Find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. Follow us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are also available for listening on Apple iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Please rate us and share us with your friends. Back to baby Botox.
0: (laughs) So, Ellen, we were talking about how social media and filters are affecting people and i assume that means also creating unreal expectations about what we are supposed to look like at all and in various points of our life recently martha stewart was on the cover of sports illustrated and there were some mixed comments about it not that she didn't look great but whether it put more pressure on women women or less pressure on women whether it was a good thing what do you think from a beauty and cosmetic dermatology perspective
2: Listen, uh, far be it for me to tell someone what he or she looks good in. If you are wearing a pink and purple polka dot check skirt and you love the way you look, great. That's wonderful. The, the thing that I, I found troubling about Martha Stewart was she does. She looks wonderful. And clearly she has had a lot of work done. And that's great. That's fine. But just own up. So for her to say that she's never had any plastic surgery, but this is just a little bit of Botox and a little bit of filler, it's just not true. It's blatantly untrue. You can't look like that without having done more than just a little bit of this and that. And Jane Fonda, she looks great, too. She's a bit older. She looks great, too. And she admits to having had, what, three facelifts? Which she says might be a bit too much. And by
0: the way, they are almost the same age.
2: Hmm. Right. But, you know, and and when you see pictures of them, they're made up. Who knows? They're filtered, this and that. When you look at Martha Stewart, I look at this critically. I get upset that she doesn't just own up to what has been done because if people want to look like that, they can't look like that. Without a little help. But I see the way her hair is. It's always in front of her ears. That suggests to me that there's, you know, that she had some work done in front of her ears. And it's fine, but it's just silly. And it, it just adds more. You know, Martha Stewart's an icon. She's an icon. She got where she is by working hard and being the, the fierce warrior that she is. But then at least ha- acknowledge that you've had help along the way. No one's born like that. You're just not. So there's this old adage
1: I always think of, and we're not allowed to use profanity on this show, so I'll just say it's either your tush or your <laughs> face, which means we get to right. a point that it's better to have an extra ten pounds, for, so your face looks better. Is this true? Am I am I using a correct? Uh, <laughs> no, you're,
2: you're. Yeah, you're using it correct. Uh, there was a dermatologist named Arnold Klein, and you all probably have heard of him. He was the Michael Jackson dermatologist, Elizabeth Taylor, and he was the godfather of fillers and Botox and. He He's no longer alive but he used to say 5 pounds on the butt 5 years off the face that was his that was his statement all the time and it's true but many women are m- much happier having a small butt they don't care so much about their face because they can help it they can do things to it but other than spanks you can't really make your butt look smaller and if that's something that you want to to do then you need to you know think about Think about it that way. So what
0: aspect of aging makes us look the oldest? Is it wrinkles, lines, sagging skin, crepiness, something else?
2: You know, for me, the thing that makes people look older or, in my opinion, worse is sun damage. So I have some patients who are literally 90 years old who have been using Retin-A for the last 25 years. And my favorite patient, Barbara, her skin is like Porcelain, even beautiful. Not, not that the color white, but there's not one irregularity in that skin. And, and, but she's 90, and her skin is very saggy. And anywhere she goes, people say to her, Barbara, your skin is so gorgeous. And it's the truth. So that, to me, is more important. All of us are going to sag. If you do plastic surgery, you'll be less saggy for a while. But your skin knows how old it is, and it will start to sag the moment you come out of surgery, like a car. You know, you buy a brand-new car, and the moment you leave a lot, it starts depreciating. It's the same thing with, with your face. Well, that's, that brings us to an interesting point, this
1: relationship between uh, dermatology and plastic surgery. And, you know, some... Where's the line? That's right. And and which why do women choose one door versus another, or maybe they go through both?
2: Well... <laughs> It's a, you know, that's, a, that's a, This is. We could have five podcasts like this because the lines have been blurred significantly. Uh, since people are looking more and more for non-invasive procedures, plastic surgeons have had to then become what they consider dermatologists. And many of them don't do any of this themselves. They have an ancillary uh, person, an esthetician, or sometimes a nurse in their office doing procedures because maybe they feel they can't make a good enough living operating. Since fewer people want to do that, there have been all sorts of devices every day as we're speaking on this podcast i'm sure there's a new device that has just gotten approved to do this or that and 99 percent of them don't do it so i i'm very i think this is where they say i'm gimmick free there are a few devices that work in my hands in my opinion and i don't do anything that i wouldn't do on myself like what so yes awkward.
0: what are the best procedures in your opinion
2: I think the best procedures, well, we're not talking about fillers and Botox and other toxins right now. The other best procedures to me uh, are the skin rejuvenating lasers. Those are the ones that are, have the most value to me because they actually treat something specific on the skin. You can measure it. You can measure how much pigment they get rid of. They can. You can get rid of brown spots. You can get rid of red blood vessels. You can help with fine lines and smoothing and texture. Those are all accomplished with different lasers. I am not a huge fan of tightening devices, except in people who don't need very much. You cannot take someone who's seventy years old and do a tightening device and think that it's going to actually yield what a facelift would yield. So um, if the patient doesn't understand that, then you're stealing his or her money.
0: Okay. And what do you think are some of the worst or harmful procedures?
2: Oh, gosh. Um... Ooh, Waste trash. of time, well, money.
1: Well, I've heard of one. Uh, I've heard of sinking fillers, people who think they have a neck tumor because oh. the filler they put in their cheek ended up sinking. Uh, have you experienced
2: that? Well, you know, that's a, that's a whole other subject as well. Because now, once someone on Instagram claims something, then it becomes a phenomenon. So this idea of, of fillers migrating. Fillers don't go, when you put it in your cheek, it doesn't migrate to your lip. What they're referring to and exaggerating is that fillers in certain areas, when they're placed there, and and then over time, the muscles around the filler contract, you can actually sort of shift the filler locally. The classic is this business of these Russian lips and these horrible things that people are doing to their lips. the lips were not meant to be that gigantic. And so as you move your lips, which we do constantly, the filler gets pushed up to the area above the lips, you know, the area between your nose and your lips. It makes you look like a monkey. And that's where the idea of migrating filler came. Mm-hmm. So now, what's the follow-up? Well, now people have a whole cottage industry of dissolving fillers. And there are people who spend their days dissolving fillers in, pe- in, in patients who think they have been over-injected or who have been over-injected. So
0: I assume that you were referring to one of the that social media thing, was it butterfly lips? Oh, that
2: was one. I or is that different?
0: I What's some, of, that some of the worst stuff you've seen on social media? Um, I've seen you do Instagrams on butterfly lips and uh, slugging, face rolling, skin oh. lamination, oh. collagen. Oh. What's the worst stuff? Or am I listing them?
2: Oh, well, you're listing a lot of them. Some of them are worse than others. Okay, I'm injecting your lips to the point of deformity. Although I get a lot of hate mail for saying that those li- that a certain pair of lips is deformed, but we all know it's deformed. I am not body shaming anyone or people who do silicone into their butt. Um, these are dangerous things. So that to me, that so having silicone injected into your into your buttocks is really. It's not a good idea at all. Okay, I don't think that putting permanent things anywhere is a, is a great idea. That's that's my that's my feeling. Um, but there are all sorts of crazy slugging. What is slugging? It's a, it's a technique where you smear Vaseline or Aquaphor all over your face or any other part, and it's intended to make your skin soft and lovely. That derived from how we treated babies. There was a feeling uh, a few years ago that if you, if you did slugging on your baby, they'd be less likely to develop eczema, and they studied this quite extensively, and in 2021, a study was released saying that slugging on babies did not in any way decrease the incidence of eczema. But that's where that concept came. Now, imagine yourself putting a big, thick smear of Vaseline on your face and going out. It, it's, it's just silly. It's like you don't need to do that to keep your skin moist. You need to avoid the things that cause you to get dry and then moisturize gently.
1: And going back to things that uh, are related to aging, hair loss. We spend so many years waxing and plucking, and then there comes a time when they're all gone. Um, Do these uh, ointments to get your eyelashes and eyebrows to fill in work?
2: Oh, that's that's a good topic. So do they? They work really well. The problem is they also come with many side effects. So that when you want, want to grow long lashes and you use one of these prostaglandin containing lash serums for a while, your lashes are just in, insanely beautiful. However, it can cause loss of fat around the eye, hmm. big time, and it can cause severe hyperpigmentation. These these um these potions were uh, developed because patients with glaucoma who are treated with those drugs because they need to be, they had the most glorious lashes, and that's how they came up with this idea Um, I used them for a long time until I literally lost all the fat around my eyes and it's it's not it's not pretty and it can't be replaced in addition I have pigmentation and redness permanently from those so now
1: we want to get back to some of our favorite questions and you're the perfect candidate because you are a two doctor household Uh, is it possible to have two equal careers at the same time
2: i I think it is possible to have two equal careers my husband and i had sort of different careers but you need a really good partner and i don't even know how you determine that but i think you figure it out before you settle down to have children together and you see how the other person behaves with you and if you think you're going to really change someone you're not you need someone who who chips in half and half you know there are certain things i will never do i can i don't care about the remote i don't care about fixing a dryer but my husband does but there's other things he doesn't care about he doesn't know interest in grocery shopping you just pick the pick the path that you are good at and that you like and you divide it up and you don't argue about who does what and just get a routine early
1: i think you've answered some of my next question a little bit what does balance mean to you
2: Balance does not mean you're always in balance. There were, are many days, there were many days when I had young children where I felt totally pushed and stressed. And you always have to choose what you're going to do. And there are some times when you have to choose a work-related thing. And hopefully you have a partner who can step in and substitute for you. You know, did I want to go to every single concert and game? I did, but sometimes I couldn't. And my, we, we would do it so that one of us, for 99% of the time, one of us could go to something so that my kids were never without somebody at their important event could i be a class mom on trips it was hard i did it a few times but i couldn't be that mother running the you know the school bake sale i couldn't do that
1: well with that dr okay. gendler i want to say thank you so much this and- is
0: the balanced dilemma